Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. The podcast episode you're about to hear features the audio recording of a previous Legislative LunchCast webinar. You can view the schedule for upcoming Legislative LunchCasts and all future Nakubo programming under the Professional Development tab of the Nakubo website. Thanks for joining us for this Legislative LunchCast on the go. Good afternoon or good morning, depending on whatever time it is, wherever you are. Thanks so much for joining us for another Legislative LunchCast. I'm Megan Schneider, Senior Director of Government Affairs here at Nakubo. Uh, and joining me is Brian Dixon, Director of Student Financial Services and Educational Programs here at Nakubo. And we are so thrilled that you are going to uh, join us for today's session. We're going to dive right in. Lots to cover today. We will uh, try and be as brief as we can, um, but just in case you uh, don't get enough of us today, you can catch us at a longer hour-long session um, at next week's tax forum. We'll be doing a Washington update next Thursday, and it'll be an hour long, so you'll have plenty of opportunity to hear more from us then. Uh, but just 30 minutes today, and we'll start with what's going on on Capitol Hill, uh, namely, what's up with the government's money? You've probably heard a lot of late about uh, continuing resolutions and debt ceilings and all sorts of things like that. I'll run through them really briefly just so you know where they are, where we are with those. Uh, so uh, the federal government's fiscal year ends at the end of September. It is by the end of September that they are supposed to come up with a new uh, budget for the next fiscal year. This year, as in most previous years, probably going on a decade now, uh, they did not meet that end of September deadline and needed to pass a continuing resolution to fund the federal government at the previous year's fiscal levels until they can come up with a uh, budget for the next year. That's what prevents those government shutdowns from happening, which aren't fun for anyone. So great that they did that. Um, similar situation with the debt ceiling this year. That essentially prevents uh, the U.S. government from breaching their borrowing limits. Again, very good thing. Potentially bad impacts for the global economy had that happened. An agreement was reached on both separately, both for the CR and for the debt ceiling. We're looking around, certainly for the CR, a December 3rd timeline uh, should be around the same for the debt ceiling. What's that? Why is that important for us to know is one, government shutdowns often uh, can impact our research universities, um, but also because it has taken a long time. It took a long time. It took a lot of Congress's time to come to both a continuing resolution and an agreement on that debt ceiling. And that took up time that uh, the federal government needed to deal with infrastructure. 
something you are also probably sick of hearing about. Uh, it seems like this is all that Congress is talking about today is coming to an agreement on the various infrastructure packages. Just as a reminder, we do have two major infrastructure packages in play. There is the bipartisan framework, which is traditional infrastructure, bridges, roads, the sort of things that we uh, think of when we think of uh, traditional infrastructure. That package was agreed to quite some time ago. Most of the discussion that you hear that is going on now with the Democrats negotiating amongst themselves is on this human infrastructure plan. You might hear it called the Reconciliation Plan. Its official name is the Build Back Better Act. But this is the uh, much more broad infrastructure package. Again, Democrats are referring to this as the human infrastructure package that they are working out amongst themselves. This incorporates uh, components of the earlier American Jobs Plan and American Families Plan, notable for us because it has quite a bit in there for higher education. Um, Initially, that free community college proposal that was talked about quite a bit was in there. A number of changes for Pell, including increases to the minimum award that can be made. Lots of additional support for research and development, uh, support for HBCUs in there, uh, support for digital infrastructure. It, when you are hearing about all of the ba- debate that's happening on the Hill right now, this is the package we're talking about. You have uh, progressive Democrats on the left that want to spend $3.5 trillion or more and do a lot of work on a lot of items. And then you have uh, more moderate Democrats that want to spend somewhere in the $1.5 to $2 trillion range, which obviously means it will be a much smaller package that does a lot less. Uh, There are also disagreements on how to pay for this plan. So when you're hearing all of the debate, that is what's basically going on right now. There were discussions that maybe an agreement on that would be reached this week. I have my doubts. We'll see what happens. I think we may still have a bit to go on this. But again, there are a number of really important provisions in that plan that will have a lot of impacts for higher education. You can read more about all those various uh, proposals on our website and in the resource document uh, for this lunch cast. One important thing to note, though, it does look like in this in these efforts to get this plan smaller, that free community college proposal has been stripped out of the package, it seems. Obviously, we won't know for sure until we see text of a uh, final piece of legislation that's being voted on, but it does look like the free community college component will be removed from this plan. That doesn't necessarily mean we'll never discuss it again uh, on Capitol Hill, but it, it means that it probably won't be in this current package. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Thanks, Megan. Some other bits on the Hill. We are looking for some changes to legislation to help to help student veterans. Um, so there was this Isaacson Rowe bill that was signed into law back at the beginning of 2021, and it was kind of a package of of several bills addressing veterans' issues, and, and a lot of the provisions actually took effect immediately. For the most part, these are good because we, you know, we're always wanting to improve conditions for our student veterans. But there are two corrections bills floating out there. Nakubo supports both of them. The first issue we're looking at is is what we're calling rounding out. So think about a student veteran in their final semester or term um, at an institution. So a senior, for instance. In, in a lot of cases, they may be only taking a small number of courses uh, to finish their degree. Um, and previously, there was this standing VA policy that allowed those student vets in their final term to enroll in kind of extra courses that were unrelated to their program. And those typically wouldn't be uh, eligible for GI Bill funding, but would allow them to 
enroll in those extra classes to raise their enrollment status to full time. And they could even, you know, retake courses to improve their GPA. And this uh, preserved their monthly housing allowance um, because so much of, of VA benefits are tied to full-time status. So before the pandemic, actually, VA was looking at its policies and decided to end this policy. The new administration has brought back the policy, but with some tighter restrictions. So currently, right now, uh, those courses for rounding out, they have to be related to a, the degree program of the student and not be courses that were previously taken. So you start thinking about degree programs that don't have a ton of electives and those with strict kind of pathways or even at community colleges, and it might result in enrollment dropping below full-time status. So along with several other associations, we're asking for that looser, more flexible policy uh, to be reinstated. The other, uh, one of the other issues here is dual certification. I don't want to get too, too in the weeds on this, but this basically has to do with how schools certify student veterans enrollment. They have to do this. And the law actually calls for two certifications, one at the beginning of the term and a second after kind of the dust settles after the ad drop period when students have finished adjusting their schedules. And and for the most part, that works for a lot of schools. But when you look at schools with flat tuition rates, it's really uh, not necessary to, to make sure a student isn't receiving too much or, or too little of their benefits because that rate is is indeed flat regardless of the credit count. And doing that second certification could take some time away from those staff uh, and providing other services. So uh, we don't think that's going to really result in a lot of overpayment. So we're asking for that fix. And then finally, this shopping sheet, uh, it's really about disclosures to student veterans about their colleges and universities that they might enroll in. And disclosures are good, but a lot, some of the bits are a little uh, confusing or misleading. And not to mention that there are just a ton of disclosures out there. We're drowning in disclosures. Uh, think of the terms of service when you uh, make a purchase online. I mean, right? Who's reading those? Uh, so the law calls for some things like estimates of, of costs and student aid benefits for the duration of a program, so the duration of your major, uh, which is really hard to estimate, and um, it would be hard to determine. So um, there's actually already a disclosure kind of um, system in place at the Department of Education, and we're just calling on VA to to use that. And then just some uh, real quick updates at the Department of Education. They're going through what's called negotiated rulemaking. This really isn't a surprise. You know, we have a new administration. They're making changes to regulations. We see this all the time. Um, and it's a bit of a process. The department has hearings to discuss topics. Negotiators are nominated, and then they get into the actual bit of negotiating. And it, it, it involves all kinds of constituencies, so staff at the department, students, consumer groups. Um, and typically, they three rounds. Each round is about five days, and it's across multiple months. So a bit of a long haul. And this is required under law. So the department has to do this when they're making adjustments to programs that are authorized under under Title IV. So they work through all this. They come up with language. And if they reach consensus on the regulatory language, the whole group agrees. Those are what the department put out in the, their proposed rules. If they don't, the department kind of drafts their own proposed rules. But either way, it goes out for comment. And then they publish final rules. All that to say, we are in the middle of negotiated rulemaking. Uh, they started on October 4. The first kind of grouping of items they're looking at is like Pell Grant reform, uh, student loan forgiveness and discharge programs, uh, loan repayment plans. And they're actually starting another kind of tranche of, of issues. They're actually having hearings today. They had hearings yesterday to talk through the Department of Education's 90-10 rule. 
which basically is the regulation that says um, that for-profit institutions must receive at least 10% of their revenue uh, from non-federal sources. So they are looking in that as we speak, and they will probably kick off that formal process um, after the new year in January of, of 2022. So I think, Megan, now you're going to talk a little bit about uh, Title IX. Uh, so along with all the other rulemaking that Brian mentioned, we also do know that uh, changes to Title IX are on the way. And when I say Title IX in this context, I'm mostly talking about the handling of campus sexual assault under Title IX. I'm sure you all remember that new rules went in place uh, during the Trump administration in August of last year. Um, it's not a huge surprise that this department has already announced that they will make changes to those rules. Important to note, though, that until an actual rulemaking happens, those rules that did go into place last August are still in effect. So your campus does still need to be operating under those for the most part. Um, the department has issued a couple of additional notices of interpretation that tweak, make some tweaks, um, but we don't have a full-scale overhaul. It's looking like the timing on that will be uh, May of next year, so that's May of 2022, um, for a new proposed rule in this area. But again, like I mentioned, there have been some notices of interpretation. Um, I think most recently we uh, saw that one um, based on a recent Supreme Court ruling saying that um, title the department is including um, discrimination based on uh, sexual orientation and gender to be a component of the Title IX regulations. So we may see one or two more additional notices of interpretation like this until we see a full-scale overhaul um, of those rules that were passed last August. But again, in the interim, make sure you're complying with those uh, rules from last August because they are uh, what is ruling currently. Uh, the topic that is always at the front of everyone's mind right now, it seems, the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund. Uh, so what's new with HERF? We actually do have a couple of recent updates uh, for HERF. There was a new question recently added to that FAQ. That's that 28-page document uh, that you can find on the Department of Education website that is serving as uh, the most substantive overarching guidance for all of the HERF funds right now. Um, the new question had to deal with an updated quarterly institutional reporting requirement. Nothing changed on the student aid side. That is all as exactly as you have been doing it. Essentially, all you need to know about this new quarterly institutional reporting requirement, which you all probably just recently finished, the most recent one was due on October 10th, uh, was that you do need to use this new digital PDF template that the department has created. You can find that on their website. Um, and the department did say if you are reporting, some institutions are going beyond what's required on that PDF template. If you are doing that, that's great too. You can uh, continue to continue to post that on your website just as you have been, but you also do need to have that PDF template uh, completed as well. Um, so make sure that you've located that on the website and that you're using that for your institutional quarterly reporting going forward. We also have seen throughout the pandemic a number of Title IV flexibilities related to R2T4 and other items. Many of those have been updated of late um, and extended through September of next year. Um, so uh, make sure you're uh, checking the IFAP page regularly or FSA Partners Connect, as I believe they're known now. But we've seen a, a, just a, a pretty big extension of most of the pandemic flexibilities. Uh, in other HERF news, uh, the department recently proposed a new annual reporting form. I'm sure many of you remember last year's reporting form was a little clunky, wasn't uh, super effective at capturing much data. Um, and there were quite a few questions uh, from institutions about it. 
now that we've had a little bit more time, um, the department put together a more wholesale form. Uh, initial comments on this proposed form were due in August 23rd. There has been uh, an extension comment period on that form is open a little bit longer. Nakubo did submit really substantive comments uh, in conjunction with our friends over at NASPA. And the good news is, based on the first round of feedback that we have heard from the Department of Education, they are very been very responsive to many of the concerns that we expressed. From the business office per- perspective, one of our biggest concerns was the way that they were asking you all on that proposed form to report your lost revenue. We made a number of suggestions on how they could improve that, and it looks like that will be incorporated into the final form. We won't know, of course, for sure until we see that final form, but it does look like based on uh, what the response that we've seen from the Department of Ed has been to that first round of feedback that uh, the form will be significantly improved from the draft that you probably saw back in August. Um, In terms of timing, I would say mid to late November, maybe even into December for a final form. Um, But we are hoping we have several months notice so that uh, when you all are going to fill those out, hopefully most of your questions will have been answered by that time. And just a reminder, don't forget to check out the Nakubo HERF Resource Center on our website. All of our latest news um, related to HERF is there, as well as uh, several COVID-19 accounting tutorials. Most of them are HERF related, but we also have some on the Paycheck Protection Program and other things. So be sure to check those out. Recordings of all our past COVID-19 town halls are there. And of course, links to all the latest Department of Education guidance. That is in the resource document for today, but also you can also find it directly on the Nakubo website. With that, I am going to turn it back to Brian. All right. Thanks again, Megan. More veteran stuff. Uh, this is at the Department of Veterans Affairs. So over there, they have uh, a regulation known as the 8515 rule that basically prohibits um, student veterans not already enrolled in a program from doing so if more than 85% of the students enrolled in that program have all or part of their tuition fee, tuition fees or other other charges paid for um, by the institution or by VA. So if the program hits that number, no new student veterans can enroll in it. Others who are in it can continue, so they're kind of allowed to, to continue. So schools have to submit all kinds of information to VA or their state-approving agency to determine, you know, if they've hit those targets uh, or those triggers, rather. But VA also has a policy that says if the overall number of VA beneficiaries, so students or family members receiving education benefits, if the overall number uh, of those folks enrolled at an institution doesn't exceed 35%, so this is a headcount, the school receives a two-year exemption from that 8515 reporting. Um, that said, you'll, schools still have to monitor and, and collect that data, um, but there's not the, all of the reporting. Uh, it looks like this um, new kind of reset on this 8515 rule and 35% exemption uh, will begin for the term starting um, here after the new year. So we are definitely monitoring this. I know there are a lot of questions um, circulating in the school certifying official community and even with our folks. So we will continue to monitor this and, and share any new information that may come out from VA. But that's kind of it on the, the student veteran uh, front. Megan, back to you. 
several updates on international students and um, Department of Homeland Security updates that we wanted to share. Those of you at institutions with uh, larger international student or international scholar uh, populations know that those students have been the recipients of a number of travel restriction flexibilities throughout the pandemic. There have, of course, been a number of restrictions on international travelers generally coming into the U.S. during the pandemic. Recent guidance that is, has come out um, just this Monday, as a matter of fact, uh, the president issued an executive order saying that uh, the U.S. will no longer go on a country by country basis to determine whether or not travelers can come into the U.S. That's what we have been doing uh, throughout the pandemic up until now. The new guidance um, simply will uh, ask uh, international travelers coming into the U.S. So whether or not they're vaccinated, if you're fully vaccinated, you can come into the U.S. Doesn't matter what country you're coming from. However, Nakubo and other higher ed associations were concerned that this new guidance would be difficult. Plenty of us have students and scholars coming from countries where the vaccine is not as widely available as it has been here in the U.S. Um, we did write to DHS and ask that they uh, provide some uh, provision or exemption for those individuals. Um, we are still going through Monday's guidance, but my initial reading of it is that it does indeed look like those uh, international students on F1 and J1 visas that are coming from countries that do not have uh, wide access to the vaccine will be permitted to enter the U.S. Um, I imagine we are still waiting for further CDC guidance on this. I imagine there will be eventually a component that does require those individuals to become vaccinated shortly after entering the U.S. But some good news for those of you that do have a lot of international students, um, especially for those coming from countries where the vaccine isn't widely available, um, that they should still be able to enter the U.S. for your upcoming semesters. Other DHS news, um, recent updates to the DACA program. Just as a reminder, DACA was, of course, passed back in 2012, and there have been a number of legal challenges to it the entire time that it's been in existence. Uh, sometimes it's efforts bolstering it. Other times it's efforts uh, trying to dismantle it. We've seen everything across the board. Of course, for our DACA students, that does create a certain amount of uh, uncertainty that they have to live with in their day-to-day -day life. Most recently, uh, a federal judge in Texas ruled the program illegal. One of the biggest reasons that they made that declaration was because the DACA program, again, if you recall back in 2012, did not go through the full notice and comment process like Brian was mentioning uh, that rules need to go through. It was created by an executive order. So essentially, the judge says because, said because it didn't go through that process, among other reasons, uh, it's not constitutional. So to help deal with that issue, the Department of Homeland Security just issued a new regulation for the DACA program uh, to put it through that full notice and comment process in the hopes that it will help to uh, fend off some of those future legal challenges to the program. Because this is mostly an effort just to bolster the legal underpinnings of the program, None of the eligibility criteria for the program has really had any substantive changes as a result of that. Um, most of the eligibility criteria in this proposed rule are exactly the same as they have been. Um, it does decouple the work authorization uh, that is contained in the DACA program and the um, just deferred uh, deportation protection. So going forward, individuals won't have to apply for both. They can apply for just deferred protection if they 
they'd like. Um, again, this is seen as an effort to uh, sort of strengthen the program so that if potentially one of those two provisions is struck down in the courts, then the other can still exist on its own. While this would help, again, strengthen the legal underpinnings of the DACA program, even the proposed rule acknowledged that Congress really would need to take some more formal action to codify this program in order to make it more permanent. We, of course, have continued to advocate to Congress to do just that over the years, just so that our DACA students aren't living in uh, constant uh, insecurity as to what their uh, status is from one day to the next. So stay tuned on that. We will be submitting comments on the proposed rule along with other higher ed associations. So stay tuned for those. Uh, Something in the news quite a bit lately and something that I know a lot of your campuses are really grappling with, whether or not to do vaccine mandates, if you do what they look like, uh, do you have to as part of a number of new requirements? We're going to try and unpack some of that for you here today. There are, of course, uh, links that will help you in the resource document for this webinar that explain all of this in more depth, uh, including a full brief from our friends over at the American Council on Education on the new federal contractor requirements. But what we're talking about here is two separate uh, mandates. One is uh, has come from OSHA and has indicated that private sector employees, including, of course, private colleges and universities with 100 or more workers, must mandate vaccines or mandatory weekly testing for employees returning to the workforce. Does also have some additional requirements um, requiring employers to provide paid time off for employees to get the vaccine or recover from vaccine side effects. We are waiting on an emergency temporary standard rule on this to provide some more guidance. So stay tuned for that. We will fill you in as soon as we have more details. But of course, the other component of this is that uh, the White House has also issued a federal contractor mandate that essentially says, if you are a federal contractor, your covered employees, which is to say those of your employees that are working on these federal contracts also need to be uh, vaccinated. Of course, there are exemptions for uh, those with uh, medical or religious uh, reasons for opting out. Many of your institutions are federal contractors. Many of you have federal grants, which is not the same as being a federal contractor. So we really, really encourage you all to look closely at the requirements uh, of this mandate, but also of your engagements with the federal government to determine which are federal contracts, which are just grants. Important to note, this one is not restricted just to private employers. This is whether or not you're a public institution, whether or not you're a private institution. We've seen a lot of public universities ultimately go ahead and go with a university-wide mandate based on these federal contractor requirements, primarily because one of the components that you have to uh, do to sort of ensure compliance is make sure that those federal contractor employees won't come into contact with other individuals that are not uh, vaccinated or are complying with um, accommodations. Um, And there's really no way to do that on a campus, right? You know, these employees will come into contact with other employees in parking garages or dining halls or hallways. Um, So if you're seeing some of the larger systems, I know Penn State, Arizona Public Universities, a couple of other states have recently sort of made these decisions. That's sort of what's motivating that. But again, you'll have to make the call that feels right for your institution. We do have uh, that brief on our website that hopefully will help you uh, navigate some of this and we'll continue to issue guidance um, as we know more. Turning to another uh, often fraught issue, uh, student athlete compensation. 
uh, continues to be something that uh, has not really lost any momentum since Congress got interested in this uh, probably around a year or so ago. Um, there was just a recent uh, hearing in the House of Representatives again, on the issue of student-athlete compensation for use of their name, image, and likeness. This is the seventh such hearing uh, that Capitol Hill has had. It's, you know, various different committees, but it's been talked about quite a bit on Capitol Hill. Of course, the NCAA did suspend their rules restricting student-athletes being compensated for use of their NIL. So we are starting to see players um, being compensated for those uses. Most recently, the National Labor Relations Board uh, released a memo indicating that the agency's position is that student athletes at private institutions are employees under the National Labor Relations Act. It's just private institutions because the National Labor Relations Act does not govern uh, public employers. What you all should know is that we are certainly keeping an eye and cognizant of the fact that um, this opinion, while not binding yet, does give a good idea of where the agency is and the potential implications on the employer side, on the tax side, if we do in fact need to treat these individuals as employees as opposed to uh, what we would maintain that they are as students who are also athletes. Um, there's there's a lot there, right? There, there could be potential impacts on the employer and tax side, uh, and we will have a resource coming soon that dives into this a little bit uh, more deeply. In the meantime, you can find more resources in the resource document uh, for today. Uh, With that, I think that we are right at time. So thank you all for joining Brian and I. Always a delight to uh, talk with you folks. And uh, in the meantime, if you have any more questions for us, please feel free to email us at advocacy at nakubo.org. Lots of good events coming up as well on the Nakubo schedule. Uh, Be sure to check out the upcoming programs section of our website for more learning opportunities. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. 